I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 10. We do want to look at verses 16 through 23. Persecution is to be expected, is what I've entitled the message. You, you may want to leave now. I mean, this is an interesting emphasis put forward by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not for fair weather Christians, for sure. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Uh, minister to our hearts as we study it together. Help us to get the, uh, the points out of the text that you would have us to see and apply to our lives now. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Christ the King is the, uh, the theme. And then we are in chapters 8 through 10, emphasizing the, the authority of the King. Matthew is Jewish. And Matthew writes essentially with a Jewish audience in mind. His goal is to show that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah King who came to his people Israel, presented his kingdom credentials, but then was rejected and put to death on a Roman cross. But of course, that is not the end of the story. He arose from the dead on the third day. And we now know that God is doing a brand new thing in what we call the church age. He's building a forever family of believers called the church. The kingdom program has been put on hold. There's a delay here. We're still praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, we have citizenship ultimately in the kingdom as, as God's people in the church. And we're going to rule and reign with Christ. But we're not there yet. We're, we're not in the kingdom. Uh, if so, what I'm going to teach here and what Jesus is teaching us would have no relevance. Because you know what happens when we get into the kingdom? No more persecution. That's not going to happen in the kingdom. We're not there yet. Well, Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, came offering the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. And to prove he was the Messiah legitimately offering the kingdom, he did kingdom miracles or kingdom signs, which authenticated his claims. Then in the course of his ministry, Christ authorized 12 disciples who he also called apostles. They were ordained of Christ to be his unique and special authoritative representatives. And they really were unique. They too were endowed with kingdom authority, as it were, to do kingdom miracles or sign miracles, which all pointed back to the reality of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah being presented to Israel on the condition of repentance. The message was, the kingdom is at hand. It was being offered. And the evidence was the kingdom miracles being presented. Note, uh, by way of review, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, uh, he called his 12 disciples uh, to him and he gave them power over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. So he gives them authority. He gives them power. To do all kinds of what I call kingdom signs. And then you go down to verse 8. Uh, at the end there. Where he says heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. And sandwiched right in the middle there. Is the commission to these apostles. And as you go preach saying. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's the thing. Here was their message. The kingdom is at hand. And they were doing kingdom sign miracles as evidence of that. 
And notice it was a no-charge ministry. It was purely a grace ministry. Christ said, freely you have received, freely give. This is kingdom stuff. It's all grace, but it must be received. And those receiving had the pronouncement of peace upon them. However, Christ instructed the apostles to shake the dust off their feet against those rejecting their kingdom message. And to move on to the next place. And I want to emphasize this point, which I emphasized last time. This ministry was so powerfully convincing. uh, The kingdom is at hand with evidence of kingdom miracles. It was so powerfully convincing and so irrefutable that Christ said anyone not accepting of it, that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those people. The evidence was overwhelming. Inexcusable to reject it. It was overwhelming and so was accountability to the truth of it. Now we might think with a kingdom miracle ministry that all would go swimmingly, right? Wow, if I just had the power to do these kind of things, man, I'm sure no one would get in the way. Everything, everybody just line up and say, yep, yep, can't disagree. I mean, it'd be nothing but power, celebration, and acceptance. But that would be wrong. Yes, the power of heaven would be on display, but so would the resistance of darkness. Christ, in these next verses, in Matthew 10, 16 through 23, outlines that until his second coming... His followers going forth with his message can expect hostile resistance and persecution. I wish I had a much more cheery message for you this morning, but I don't. Uh, I do have good news, and that is all that ends well is well. And it is going to end well for his people. But this is not fun and games that we're called to. I sometimes think American Christianity has really kind of lost sight of the cross. We think in terms of the glory, it doesn't matter how we live now, the glory is coming for all of us. Everybody goes, essentially, any flimsy profession will do. But we live in a largely Christ-rejecting world that is under the sway of Satan. And the result is that God's people will face consistent persecution and abuse. Praise the Lord for exceptions where we're not constantly always experiencing this, but we can regularly expect this. Now, if Christ were evaluated on giving a motivational speech, according to human standards, I suggest to you that he would be giving a failing grade. Uh, This is not what we naturally want to hear, right? Please sign up for persecution and abuse. Come forward now. (laughs) Uh, that, that, that's, you say, boy, that, that doesn't motivate me. I, I want something that's going to promise me prosperity and health and wealth and success and constant victory. That's the message from the false teachers largely today. They never talk about the way of the cross. Yet Christ informs his people that we are going to continually face this rebel world and its hostility. Just remember what they did to Jesus. And remember, a disciple is not above his master. And so Jesus warns and instructs his apostle, and by way of extension, all those who will be his followers down through the ages, all the way down to the second coming as we follow our text through here today. 
that there will be no lasting tranquil conditions for God's people on the earth until the setting up of his kingdom at his second coming. We're looking forward to the kingdom and we're praying for the kingdom to come for that very reason. But we, as it were, are behind the lines in enemy territory. A spiritual analogy. We are, as it were, spiritually speaking, in Afghanistan, which is controlled by the Taliban. You see the analogy spiritually. And that place where Christ has put us is anything but friendly. It's not a friendly environment. And that's what Christ says. Verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Boy, how's that for a commissioning? I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Oh, this is not good. This is a, this is a very dangerous context. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I is in the emphatic position. Christ is the one doing this. He is the one sending out the apostles as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, we all like a safe place, right? Place of refuge. Like a safe place. Not so much in the, the center of God's will in this, in this world. Now, there is ultimately in Christ is where I say the only safe place ultimately in the world spiritually. But physically, it's not a safe place in this world. It's dangerous. Sheep in the midst of wolves is a very dangerous, perilous context. It's anything but safe. So Christianity, true, raw Christianity, authentic Christianity, let's use that word, uh, is not a physically safe place. It's only spiritually safe, but not physically the way of the cross is not a physically safe place. This, and this message which I'm preaching to you, I think, completely out of sync with what most evangelicals probably would lean to today. It's, it's so much man-centered and so little God-centered. So much me and now and not too much in light of eternity. Sheep are essentially defenseless creatures, by the way. Um, and when it comes to uh, wolves... Uh, wolves are vicious predators. They tear sheep up. They devour them. And the sheep are powerless to stop them. That is why sheep need the protection of a shepherd. We need the shepherd. The context into which Christ is sending his people is fraught with peril. And therefore he says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Interestingly, Christ doesn't Assume that we should assume a martyr's complex and say, well, boy, if we're going to be in that context, just be prepared to die. Uh, no, he says, therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In effect, he says, you need to be smart. Be wise, be smart and yet harmless. Don't cause trouble. You're not looking for trouble. You see, serpents are said to be wise in the sense of being shrewd. Or prudent in their ability to avoid danger. Serpents are wise in the sense that they are subtle, quiet, and difficult to trap. They shrewdly have ways of escaping from threatening situations, which Christ is highly recommending. So God's people are not to be naive. We're to use our head. Be wise about it. 
uh, avoid trouble if possible, and yet do it in an ethical way that does no harm. We are not to be like a bull in a china closet, that's not our calling, but rather like harmless doves. We are not to respond to persecution with violence, but rather with finesse, tact, and wisdom. Interestingly enough, Jesus here emphasizes human responsibility. You say, well, if he's sending us out and he's the sovereign God, he can just protect. Yeah, he could do that. But it's interesting here, isn't it, that he emphasizes human responsibility in this whole context. There's a beautiful balance here, by the way. Prudence can easily turn into fleshy manipulation. Innocence can easily turn into ignorance or naivety. But prudence balanced with innocence is just the right response. We want to be smart, but not naive. We want to be harmless, but not stupid. Verse 17, he continues, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you here is religious persecution. And a lot of persecution happens in the name of Christ, even. Uh, back here in the Jewish context, in the name of Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. Jesus said to watch out for this. He's giving them a heads up. So that when it happens, they will not be taken off guard. The councils were the local courts run by the Jews in the context of the synagogue. For serious crimes in Israel, the judgment was a beating, called here a scourging or a flogging. The law in Deuteronomy 25, 2 and 3, allowed for a wicked man to be beaten with 40 stripes, 40 blows. The Jews, however, meticulous about the law, did not want to, boy, was it, uh, how far are we? Yeah, is it 38 or are we at 40? Uh, they wanted to be very careful. So to avoid violating the law of 40, no more than 40, they always stopped at 39. Just to be careful. This was a brutal form of inflicting painful punishment. And Paul says his experience was this. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one, just to be careful. Jesus did not want the disciples to have any misconceptions about the environment that they were being sent to minister in. It would not be a friendly environment. Now, again, we're not looking for trouble. We don't go out there and say, well, let's poke the bear because that's our job. No, we are to be as harmless as doves. We're not looking for trouble. You know what? The, you don't have to go looking for trouble. You just be faithful to Christ and it will come looking for you. The devil knows where you live. And he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's out to destroy you. Uh, you can expect it. Expect a hostile response. In view here, Christ is painting an ever-widening circle of persecution. He first states the major premise of his followers being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's the basic idea. First, the persecution essentially came from the Jews, which is the emphasis here in verse 17. After all, for the first five years of the church, uh, the church was essentially Jewish before it went to the Gentiles. And the persecution largely came from that context, a religious Jewish context. 
And for the disciples, during Christ's earthly ministry, they didn't personally feel the brunt of it. Christ did, ending up on a Roman cross. But really, for the disciples, persecution largely came after the resurrection. At the hands of the Jews, initially. So, uh, as we work our way through the text here this morning, expect a hostile environment. Jewish context, religious persecution, verse 18, which is where we go next. Gentile context, government persecution. Verse 21, family context, and that really gets hard. And some of us, in in a certain sort of way, know about that. And verse 22, a whole world context. So you can see the ever-widening circle of influence here as far as persecution. Verse 18, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Here Jesus widens the circle to include persecution by secular government agencies. Notice that this happens for Christ's sake. And God allows it. So that his people might be a testimony to these secular authorities. As we move into the book of Acts, we see the church more and more facing political, that is Gentile persecution. Even in relation to the highest realms of government. Now if God wanted to witness to Gentile authorities, how might he do that? Well, we see here that he allows his people to be brought up on charges and be brought before these authorities. And in this case, their trial is really a calling that is used for Christ's sake. And verse 19 continues, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, often when we think about potential witnessing situations, we start to worry and wonder how we should respond, don't we? Yeah, we do. I mean, who hasn't done this? I know I'm going to be meeting with this unbeliever over here, and I'm formulating how this conversation is going to go. But this is not a normal context. It's in the context of being hauled off to jail for your faith in Christ. And in that context, Christ says, don't worry about what to say when you're interrogated. In that context, Christ promises that in the hour of trial, the spirit of your father will speak through you. God will guide us in what he wants us to say. Standing for Christ may bring suffering, but along with it comes divine empowerment. The power here is of the Spirit. Uh, Christ followers put in this position are not to depend upon their own cleverness, human intellect, but rather on the supernatural power of God. This is, this is how God works. God's going to put himself on display He's going to cause his people to be powerful witnesses in that context. And that's the reason he's allowing it. Someone has said this. Man has his wickedness, but God has his way. I like that. And in the early church, we see the spirit speaking mightily through those arrested. Uh, For example, uh, here is Paul uh, before Felix and uh, his wife, Drusilla. Uh, And he sends for Paul and he heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned, it says about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid. Old King James says he trembled. I kind of like that. And he answered, go, go away for now. Leave for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you, which seems never came. 
But note this, uh, Paul's witness was very powerful. It convicted Felix to where he was, he was very afraid. He was trembling. The true Christ of the Bible is offensive to a Christ-rejecting world. Only in repentance does the rebel lay down his sword and have a come-to-Jesus experience. Christ is offensive in that he, as Savior, claims to be the only way. And that's very offensive to the world, by the way. Christ is the way. There's no other way. Your religion, it's all trash. You don't want to start there, by the way, but it's true. Uh, it's not going to get you on to God. There's only one way to get to God, and that's through Jesus. It humbles human pride. The cross is a very humbling reality. Christ is offensive and that he, in that he as Lord calls for us to be sold out in our allegiance to him. Above all else. And that too humbles the pride of men. In a naval battle, the Admiral Lord Nelson, commander of the British Navy, defeated the French. The French Admiral came on board Lord Nelson's ship to surrender. Pulled his ship up next to it and, and he was coming on board to surrender. He walked up there in all of his regalia with his sword swinging by his side. As he approached Nelson smiling... With his sword swinging at his side, he held out his hand to the victor. Nelson made no response to this gesture, but said quietly, Your sword first, sir. <laughs> Laying down the sword was a visible token of surrender. That came first. Then the handshake. In like manner, we must first in repentance lay down the sword of our rebellion and self-will. George Matheson said, Make me a captive lord and I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword and I shall conquer be. Indeed. Christ is the most wonderful, loving person in the world. And yet for those rejecting him, they don't appreciate him. They're hostile in their rejection, in fact. And they don't appreciate, you know, Christ's narrow way of thinking where he says... It's either my way or the way to hell. I mean, Christ is very narrow. There's, not a, there's no give. Right? I'm going to say there's not a lot. There, there's no give in there. And, you know, some of the, the first martyr of the church, Stephen, so boldly, you know, he starts out here as he's addressing these Jewish leaders. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, and so do you. That's some pretty straight talk. Pretty bold. And you go on down through the text. We won't read it here. They cast him out of the city, stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Man has his wickedness, but God has his way. And out of this eventually came the conversion of Saul. Man has his wickedness, but God has his way. Now, some have tried to apply verses 19 to... Uh, 19 and 20, to sermon preparation, or I should say, the lack thereof, claiming that uh, God will give them what they need to say when it's time to say it. J. Vernon McGee says, when I was in seminary, a fellow student who was a little odd in more than one way, believed that he should preach without any preparation. A friend and I decided one night that we would go with him and hear him preach. Well, it was painfully obvious that he had not prepared his message. On the way back to the seminary, my friend, who had even more nerve than I, asked him, Did you prepare that message tonight? 
Of course I didn't, he said. Well, how did you get it? The Spirit of God gave it to me. My friend said to him, I don't think you ought to blame that message on the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Yeah. There's a specific context here in Matthew 10 related to persecution and prison. Uh, You're not having any time. Uh, This is just where they're taking you. You're swept up in it. Uh, In that sort of context, Christ says, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will guide you in that context. But there is a certain context here. Outside of that context, we have lots of other uh, scriptures. 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Special instruction to Timothy as a leader in the church. And then 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Well, Christ continues on with the theme that we should expect hostile persecution, even in regard to family members. Uh, If we had testimony time and people were really open and willing to share, I can tell you this is not uncommon, is it? Verse 21. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and his children rise up against his parents and cause them to be put to death. The closest of human relationships, family relationships, will often see division and strife over the issue of Christ. And he will build on this as we go on further into chapter 10. And this is especially challenging and heart-wrenching. In some cases, uh, in conversion, lots of places in the world, the family will consider the person dead and have nothing to do with them. In other cases, they will even try to kill the convert. Often in Muslim context, this happens. Ed Glasscock says, Jesus was not creating a positive image of ministry for these men, was he? You say, this is very positive. Yes, it's positive that you're going to face very hard times. And Ed says, the contemporary church, which is frequently told that becoming a Christian will solve one's problems and that people will respect a believer, needs to hear this message. Yeah, I think so. And it gets more extensive. Verse 22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who continues to the end will be saved. See, the world has a problem with Christ. Frankly, they hate him. They hate him. And if you're going to join in with Christ, they're going to hate you too. I mean, isn't that what Jesus told us? You help me out, guys? Thank you. Uh, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's a given. The cause of hatred is clearly related to Christ. And why does the world hate us? Well, Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You know, if you're really going to take a stand for righteousness, that's what Paul was doing with Felix and talking about, uh, you know, righteousness and judgment to come and accountability before an all-holy God. If you're going to go there, the world is not going to appreciate that. Now, if you're going to talk about self-esteem and let's talk about all the things as far as being successful and wealthy and healthy and you get whatever you want, yeah, okay, they might tolerate that. But Jesus said, I testify of it that its works are evil. 
C.S. Lewis said, Jesus Christ did not say, go into all the world and tell the world that it is quite right. <laughs> no, uh, didn't say that. Uh, really, you know, the Lord uses us. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You know, conviction has to enter in there. We sometimes try to win people without conviction. We try to make it soft. We, we preach what I call a lordless gospel that doesn't even call for repentance. And then we say, we've got a convert. I wonder how many converts do we really have with that kind of a gospel? The world hates Jesus. Like I say, he's a, he's a very narrow person, narrow thinker. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many, there, many are they who go in by it. Narrow is the gate, difficult is the way that leads to life, and few there are those who find it. Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Good works are not the door. Religion and rituals are not the narrow way. A moral life is not the way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is everything to us as believers. It's not a joint effort. Jesus does some and I do some. No, he's the whole thing. He's the one mediator. And note the extent of the hatred. Christ said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Wow. The whole world in reality hates Christ and his followers. Sometimes it's overt. Sometimes it's covert. But make no mistake about it. This world is not a friend to Christ. That's why we need each other so much. And so much more as we see the day approaching. Romans 5.10 says, uh, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We're not, we don't come, you know, say, well, boy, he's a friendly one. Therefore, he's part of the chosen. No, God reconciles us uh, while we're still in enmity. Christ died for us when we were still in our sins. There's a hostile orientation. Peter said this. Let's skip this slide. Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes to the suffering saints. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Christ says that his followers will be hated by all for his name's sake. And we should expect mistreatment from the unbelieving world. But he also promises that he who endures to the end will be saved. Note again, this whole context that we're studying here this morning relates to persecution. And what we have here is the perseverance of the saints in the context of persecution. True faith perseveres in spite of persecution. Now indeed, uh, there may be times where we fail miserably as Peter did in a hot context. But then what did Peter do when he failed? He went out and wept bitterly. He didn't say, well, it didn't bother me. It did. And God brought him around. God continued to work in his life. Indeed, there are degrees of faithfulness. But a true believer will never completely and finally apostatize. In fact, persecution is often a means of refining and showing who is real and who is not. Just a few uh, references here. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, verse 2, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless 
Unless you believed in vain. There are those that have a very shallow, vain faith. It's not really truly life-changing. And it doesn't endure. A true saving faith endures. Colossians chapter 1. Pick up where Burke left off here. And you who were once alienated and enemies by your, in your mind by wicked works, now he is reconciled. And he goes on, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith. This is evidence of true genuineness. And one more, Hebrews chapter 10, 38, 39. The just shall live by faith. What kind of faith? Well, the kind of faith that continues. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not, that is believers, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Endurance of persecution is the hallmark of genuine salvation. Note very carefully that perseverance is not the cause of salvation, but rather the fruit of it. It's the evidence of it, not the means. We see this emphasis all the way through the book of Revelation. Just a few verses here. Uh, Christ says in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In Revelation 12.11, talking about those who will not yield to the Antichrist, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and did not love their lives to the death. This is a characteristic of the people of God. In Revelation 17, 14, when the Lord comes, those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Most assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Note again, and I stress this, That the main theme throughout this whole context here is persecution. Christ is addressing the apostles, but it is clear that he, what he is saying has a broader application than just the immediate mission that he was sending the apostles out on. For example, Christ speaks of being a testimony to the Gentiles in verse 18 here. But in the more immediate context earlier, he said they were not being sent to the Gentiles in verse 5. So Christ is speaking generally making application in an ever-widening circle of reality which comes to encompass the whole world in terms of rejection that extends all the way in duration down to the second coming of Christ, which I think is the emphasis here in verse 23. Not only would all hate Christ's people, but this reality would be in place until the coming of the Son of Man. This is the essence of what Christ is saying here. There's no getting cozy in this world. You say, well, things are just going to calm down. Yeah, they are in the kingdom, in the kingdom. If you're expecting things, if we just elect the right guy, things are going to be well. (laughs) Please, there's no right guy to be elected. There there is a king to be received. (laughs) But uh, there's no cozy place in this world. Persecution happens and God's people flee from it from one place to another, from one city to another. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. I'm out of time, so I really don't have time to read this. But you can look at it. The context here is Jewish. You see, the church had not yet been introduced, and so Christ speaks to them on these terms. Jewish rejection and persecution of God's people will be a reality into the second coming. You go to Zechariah chapter 13, and you will see that two-thirds of the Jews in the land will die because of their rejection. They're not going to be friendly. One-third will be converted in the tribulation, but only one-third, according to Zechariah 
By the way, the terminology son of man ties back to the Old Testament messianic prophecy in Daniel 7, uh, which is a second coming context. So the coming of the son of man most naturally fits with the idea of Christ's second coming. And so I think what Christ is saying here is that this pattern of persecution in a Jewish context will continue right up until the time of the second coming. By the way, there's a good point here. There is a place for self-preservation, right? There's a place for fleeing. Let's get out of here. This is, this is really dangerous. Let's be wise as serpents and, and escape. Uh, William McDonald says, it's not wrong to escape from danger, only from duty. Yeah, good point. Uh, Paul was often running for his life. Well, uh, let me uh, wrap this up, shall I? Amen? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I skipped a few passages this morning, but if you're on my email list, uh, you'll get the whole thing. And I know all of you will dutifully read it, right? Anyway, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Richard Wormbrand was severely persecuted for his faith in Romania. He died in 2001, but before he died, he started a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. And years ago, when he came to America and he spoke out against crimes that were committed by communist regimes... He was often booed here in the United States. They did not appreciate what he was saying. In fact, someone challenged him and said, how are you qualified to speak out in this way? And he stripped down to his waist, revealing 18 torture scars, saying, these marks are my qualifications. These marks are my credentials. Paul said it this way in Galatians six seventeen. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I'm pretty sure getting your thumb caught in the car door on the way to church doesn't count, does it? Probably not. Amy Carmichael said, no wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and, the, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? What a penetrating question. You know, Paul said, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Did he make an exception for American Christians? Great exception. I don't think so. Can we have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Jesus said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, God help us to follow in the way of the cross. Let's stand and have our closing hymn.